Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. For most of us, when we think of the name William Shakespeare, we think of language. We think of famous speeches and phrases that have since become common. All the world's a stage. We are such stuff as dreams are made on. And of course, to be or not to be. We think of rousing choruses. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. And plaintive cries. Out, damned spot. But what about gesture and other forms of non-verbal communication? In particular, how do Shakespeare's characters use gesture to communicate ideas of shame and guilt, because his characters communicate and communicate loudly even when they don't speak. From thumb-biting in Romeo and Juliet, kneeling in Coriolanus and Taming of the Shrew, spitting in Richard III and the Merchant of Venice, and Lady Macbeth's frantic hand-washing, gestures of shame and shaming in Shakespeare's work are numerous and vivid. How do we read these moments? And can they tell us something specific about the gendering of shame in 16th and 17th century England? This is a deep dive into a fascinating topic. And my guest today to lead me through is Dr. Miranda Faye Thomas, theatre scholar and assistant professor in theatre and performance at Trinity College Dublin. Dr. Thomas is a contributing editor to the new Oxford Shakespeare as well as the Arden Performance Series and the Shakespeare Survey Literary Journal. Her book, Shakespeare's Body Language, Shaming Gestures and Gender Politics on the Renaissance Stage, examines this non-verbal communication and how it constructs, reinforces and sometimes contradicts the gender norms of Shakespeare's time. Dr. Thomas, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into the detail of Shakespeare and these things that are so often missed, which are not the words, but everything around them. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be talking about it with you. Now, we're going to be talking about bodily gestures and gestures particularly meant to humiliate. And these have naturally changed since the 16th century. But there are examples in your book that are still used. Spitting at someone, for example, would be understood now, but others we can only understand in their context. Do you think that the gestures we're going to discuss, when seen by Shakespeare's audience, would have been understood or 
in the same way as we might now understand spitting? Did his contemporaries understand them and did they understand them differently to us? It's such a good question. And you're right in that context is absolutely everything. When was the last time you saw someone biting their thumb and you weren't watching a Shakespeare play or you weren't at a Renaissance fair? You know, it's unlikely that you'd see someone biting their thumb at someone if they weren't referencing Shakespeare in some way. So I guess I'm kind of interested in the way that these gestures make meaning on the stage for audiences now as well as audiences back then. I think it's interesting because we all understand this distinction between gesture and spoken language. We can all think of a time when someone humiliated us in some way. And I guess I'm interested in how we can do that in nonverbal ways, just as much as we can do it through words. In terms of the way that sort of gesture works in these plays, they often do still have that sense of timelessness. You're right, if someone spat at you today, you would still feel quite affronted, I think. I remember speaking to someone once researching about the idea of spitting. And she said, I would rather be punched in the face than to be spat at. It's just such a kind of a horrible thing to have to happen to you. But other gestures or other kind of ways of nonverbal humiliation, these aren't necessarily ones that we understand today. And the thumb bite is a really good example of one that I don't think would have survived had it not been preserved in the first scene of a Shakespearean play. Other gestures from the period, I suppose, would include things like Figging, which is again using the thumb to humiliate someone in some way. It's putting the thumb between the first and the second finger. This gesture occurs in quite a few Renaissance plays. It's not something that we really look at today. It does kind of occur in some other countries. If you were, for instance, Italian, you might be much more familiar with these kinds of gestures because it's a much more gesticular culture. And what I think is really interesting about the thumb bite in Romeo and Juliet is. I think that Shakespeare is explaining to the audience in that scene what that gesture means precisely because I don't think it's a gesture used by Elizabethan Londoners even at that time. I think there's a reason why he actually has to explain in the scene. He says it is a disgrace to them if they bear it. So I love the fact that this gesture that has become so synonymous with Shakespeare and Elizabethan London might not actually have been something that Londoners were seeing happening in the 1590s at all. I think what Shakespeare's trying to do in this scene is to set it in a really specific place on continental Europe, in Verona, in this Italian place of heat and passion. So it's interesting to see how gestures are giving us so much information that we might otherwise be missing. And is it fair to say that a contention of your work is that there are many shaming gestures in the work of Shakespeare, that this is really important to understand if we want to understand Shakespeare. And if those things are true, can you tell me about how we find gestures indicated in the plays? Shakespeare's not a big one for stage directions. You've just given one example with thumb biting in the text of the play. Is that how we find out about them? It's a really, really important question in terms of what evidence do we have for these kinds of gestures. You're right. Shakespeare isn't so much known for stage directions. It's not like we're reading a Samuel Beckett play here and we have everything completely set out really detailed in terms of what the actor's body should be doing. We do not have that at all. We do have some stage directions. They're often quite minimal, depending on which version of the play that we're looking at. So we do have some stage directions. When in Richard III, Lady Anne spits at him, there is a stage direction that says she spits at him. But often, and I think more 
often. Gestures are implied by the dialogue of the script. So they'll be codified in the language of the plays themselves. So instead of having a stage direction saying they shake hands, one character might say, take my hand. And that'll be implying this handshake, will be implying this gestural movement. So often they're kind of included in the lines of the play as a verbal prompt. That makes me wonder about what you said about thumb biting, which we're going to hopefully can talk about in a bit more detail. But just as an example of how these gestures were figured in the text and the fact that Shakespeare says, you know, they count it as a dishonour. I'm really aware that when people went to an early playhouse, not everyone got to see what was going on on stage. (laughs) You know, they talked about going to hear a play, not necessarily going to see a play. So we've got dialogue signalling what an audience is supposed to think of something and how they're supposed to react in some ways for those who can't see. So I'm wondering if we can necessarily understand that to be an indication that people weren't familiar with thumb biting, or is it actually just saying, this is how I want you to respond as an audience? Interesting idea about whether or not it's controlling audience response. I think in some ways it is. Shakespeare does have quite a clear concept in a lot of his scenes as how he wants to stage manage the behaviour that's happening between his characters. I suppose it's quite a useful way of trying to find kind of some control over your actors on the stage, because of course we don't have any directors at this point. We have minimal rehearsal time. So what we have in the script is your main way of controlling what is happening on stage. I'm really intrigued by what you said about, well, would people have seen all these gestures all the time? That's one of the reasons why I think often gestures aren't just put in a stage direction. They're also, like I said, codified in the language as well. It's a kind of belt and braces approach. So even if you're not seeing the action because you're being distracted or because someone's standing in front of you with a big hat, you can hear someone saying, take my hand, and you're understanding that sort of belt and braces approach of there is something I'm meant to visualise or I'm meant to see in some way. Okay, let's get into some specific examples then. Let's think about Romeo and Juliet. Let's think about thumb biting. Describe to me the scene in which thumb biting takes place in Romeo and Juliet. So the first proper scene of Romeo and Juliet begins with a couple of serving men. They're walking along the street, they're having a conversation with each other, and they are talking about the rival household to the one that they serve. They are really two men who are talking about big acts of braggadocio. They are full of what we would call banter now, I suppose. They're saying all sorts of kind of rude things, sexist things, threats of violence, threats of assault, that sort of thing. And as they're walking along on this hot day in Verona, they see serving men from the other household and they say to each other, maybe we could go over and start a fight. And they try to decide how they're going to do that and how they're going to do it in a way in which they won't get into trouble. And that's where the idea of the thumb bite comes in. They look for this way of trying to spark, to try and provoke a brawl, a disagreement with the serving men from the other household to prove that their household has the higher status, to prove that their house is best, essentially. Did it stand in for or equal a verbal obscenity? If perhaps there are things that can't be said by characters in the playhouse, the description of a gesture could perhaps stand in its place. I think that's one of the key reasons why this scene works so effectively in performance. One of the whole points about the insults, the thumb bite in this scene, is that it has plausible deniability. If one of the Capulets had called the Montagues a rude name, well, you hear that insult being 
grown at someone, you hear them speak it, that's evidence that they actually did it. With the thumb bite, the fact is that it's meant to be something that you could do in a nondescript way if you wanted to and then deny it afterwards. That's why we get so much back and forth immediately after the gesture's been done. You have these two serving men saying, did you bite your thumb at us, sir? And he says, no, I just bit my thumb. And he said, okay, but did you bite it at us? And they're kind of dancing around this legal boundary as to who is starting this argument. So I guess it's useful to be able to make a gesture rather than say something, because it gives you, like I said, that plausible deniability that you didn't start it, the other guy did, and therefore you won't get into as much trouble. And I suppose that's one of the things that really intrigues me about this scene and the way that masculinity is operating in it, because it's a dance around doing anything. They're not going out there and immediately punching each other in the face. They're going, you know what, I'll make a gesture. I won't do an action, I'll gesture towards an action. And I think that's what's interesting, but also cowardly about this scene as well. No one really wants to be the one to cross the line and get the fight started, but they know that they really do want to fight. How does the gesture set up the play for its violence, particularly its masculine violence? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a really useful opening scene in the way that it sets this kind of context of the way that sex and violence are completely intermingled. This is Shakespeare's real sex and violence play. I mean, we know that in the period, to die is slang for to orgasm. So we already have that big connotation there. But in this scene, you have the serving men talking about their pretty pieces of flesh. They're talking about thrusting the women of the other house to the wall. This is a play where sex and death are linked all the way through. The prologue talks about the fearful passage of their death-marked love. Romeo, when he's in the tomb, he says, thus with a kiss I die. And this is really a play about hormones, about horniness, and about tragic consequences. Gestures involving the thumb are very often kind of phallic in their nature. The thumb is a symbol of power over the other fingers of the hand. The fact that the thumb is this erect digit is another way in which it's linked to that kind of earthiness of bodily desire. So there's a lot going on there to make that connection. I think there's a link between thumbs and violence as well in gladiatorial contests, where the thumbs up or the thumbs down would be shown to a gladiator to denote death or whether or not they would be spared. So thumbs are really connecting us to this real sense of masculinity. That was an amazing answer. I suddenly realised there was so much I've missed every time I've seen this play. Does the exchange that you have outlined, this kind of trying to start a fight but not trying to start a fight, speak in some ways to sort of dueling codes at the time? Yeah, I think it does. One of the key things that happens in this scene is that they're really careful to make sure they're on the right side of the law. There is actually a line that says, is the law on our side if I do this? And his friend says no. And they go, okay, fine, right, I'm stepping back. I know what I need to do here and I know what I can't do. One of the other useful things about this scene is that it takes place publicly. It takes place on a street. So it would be avoiding any, I suppose, implication that there would be an advantage to one side or another. That's another crucial thing about the way in which this fight is prompted, I suppose. So it's definitely trying to work within the ways the law operates. And we have in this play a gesture involving hands, the touch of palm to palm, when Romeo first meets Juliet, a gesture of love. Can we compare the thumb biting as a gesture of violence with this loving gesture? I think that's a beautiful idea. 
I love the way that hands operate as this site of identity and intimacy in this play, either as a indication of hatred or as an indication of love. In Farrah Karim Cooper's book, The Hand on the Shakespearean Stage, she talks really well about the palm to palm as holy palm as kiss scene. I think she describes it as love at first touch rather than love at first sight, which I think is a lovely way to think about it. I think our idea of hands and the palm in particular, the palm would have been a much more intimate part of the body 400 years ago than it is to us now. It's moist, you know, our hands get sweaty when we meet someone that we're attracted to. It's an intimate part of you. So to put those two palms together, I know it's spoken in terms that are quite holy and devout and as an act of worship, but it's also sexy as well. Do you think both the gestures of palm to palm, which is an amazing sort of insight into intimacy at the time, what you've just said, and the thumb biting, both, however, speak to a specifically masculine declaration about power and control? That's an interesting question. I think the thumb bite is inherently masculine. I don't know if I would agree that the palm to palm is inherently gendered one way or another, other than to think about in general terms how the hand is seen as a kind of a sign of agency. But what I would say about the palm to palm scene is that while Romeo instigates it, Juliet gives as good as she gets. What I love about their exchange is it's a dialogue. It's not just him, I suppose, objectifying her, putting her on a pedestal, which is what you get in so many love poems and sonnets of the period, is you get these examples of the female love interest being dissected and atomized and their body is adored, but it's also controlled. What we get in this scene when she's touching his hand back is she's also speaking back to him. She's matching him rhyme for rhyme. She's actually making him a better love poet by giving him material that he can respond to. She inspires him, but they also inspire each other. So I think from that point of view, the palm to palm scene isn't inherently equal in terms of gender because it's the use of the palm, but I think just in terms of the way they are able to reflect each other as that mirror image is something that gives Juliet more agency in a play that is basically about her trying to escape an arranged marriage. So the fact that she's here taking matters literally into her own hands is significant. Okay, let's move on to look at another gesture which is specifically about masculinity, which is the horning gesture in Othello. Again, first of all, can you give some sense of context? Of course. So nowadays we might think about, I suppose, the bunny ears or the hook'em horns. So if you've ever made fun of someone in a photograph by putting up two fingers behind their head to make them look like they have horns or rabbit ears, that's the kind of gesture I'm thinking of here. Horns are kind of associated with animals rather than humans. This is, I suppose, a dehumanising kind of gesture. And the way that we're thinking about horns in Shakespeare's plays is the way that they relate to cuckoldry. Traditionally, the legend behind the cuckold comes from ornithology, the idea being that you have the cuckoo as the creature who places his eggs in another bird's nest so they can be raised by another parent. And this kind of insult, the idea of accusing someone of being a cuckold, carries huge weight against a man's identity, They're even their very concept of masculinity. Some people in Spain would put up horns, not as a gesture, but would literally put up horns against a neighbour's house. And that carries as much legal weight 
as that of a written libel at the time. It's against the law in Venice as well. So there's a real acute sense that this is a huge slanderous thing to accuse someone of. But there was the belief that horns would grow upon the forehead of a man whose wife was unfaithful. And the really humiliating thing about that fear that you're being cuckolded, that those horns growing on your head, is that everyone else can see it except you. So you're the last to know, and that's what's really shaming about the whole experience. Yes, I remember Felicity Heal's article about the sort of revelry that was carried out Charivari against people who are not conforming to gender codes. And one member of the elite called Sir Thomas Posthumus Hobie was mocked because his wife was childless after four years of marriage. And the revelers say it were better that the stag's horns on the wall were as hard nailed or hard fastened upon Sir Thomas's head. So, you know, this is something that's being deployed at every level of society with this connotation. Does the gesture that we see in Othello tell us something specifically, do you think, following what I've just said, about early gender roles within marriage, what it is to be seen to lose power within a marriage? I say seen because, of course, Desdemona is not actually unfaithful to Othello. Yeah, I suppose what I'm interested in here is the impact that a woman's fidelity or infidelity has on a man's identity. What's so difficult about this play... Despite society's real prejudices, Othello has really made a name for himself as a respected military general. But all that he's achieved is thrown into chaos because of the suspicions he ends up having about his wife's behaviour. It's no reflection on any of the other kind of things that he's done in his life, the things he's overcome, the challenges that he's risen to. All of that, in terms of the way that he sees himself and the way that he thinks other people see him, completely fall apart with the idea that his wife is sleeping with somebody else. The play, quite famously, doesn't really have a subplot because this fear of infidelity is so all-consuming. It doesn't just take over Othello's mind, it takes over the whole play. And I just find it really interesting about the way that a woman's reputation, well, I suppose a man's reputation and a woman's reputation, if their husband and wife are interlinked, her behaviour is a reflection on him in some way, in a way that is obviously really deeply misogynist. I mean, you're even saying, actually, that in the end, it's a woman's behaviour, a woman's reputation that can trump a man's, that he may have, as you say, established years of credit and good honour and good standing in the community, but one slip from her is something that can obliterate all of that completely. So it's actually that there's a kind of primacy to her honour than over his Yeah, absolutely. I suppose it comes down to the fact, well, okay, you can run an army, but can you control your own wife? It's as straightforward and as simple as that. Obviously, we need to also bring in the way that race has an impact on his own fears here, particularly about the fact that this is an interracial marriage. It's something that he begins to question himself, despite earlier on in the play saying that there was no issue at all. There are real ways in which I think his fragility as a man is rooted in all of the different things that have been thrown against him over the years because of his race, meaning that his manhood is more possibly in question than the other men in the play. And that certainly will be an association between people of other races, non-white people, and being sort of feminised as the centuries go on. But it's very interesting that you spot it here. And I absolutely agree also in this sense of 
seeing this play out in history as well as literature, my conviction about Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn is that he's devastated by a sense that she has committed adultery. And it is that sense of what people are saying about you. So what does it mean that Othello doesn't actually see any character make the gesture, but he is nevertheless fixated with the idea that it has, is happening all the time? Yeah, like I said, one of the most shameful things about being cuckolded is that you're the last to know. If you think about how embarrassing it is inherently to have spinach in your teeth, it's not inherently embarrassing <laughs> to get spinach in your teeth. If you're walking around the house, you don't have any meetings on Zoom or in person, I'm not going to look in the mirror a couple of hours later and go, oh no, I can't believe I had spinach in my teeth. If I've got spinach in my teeth and then I go to a meeting and then I give a lecture and then I run into my ex, suddenly... I realized five hours later that I've had spinach in my teeth. Everyone else has seen it. I haven't seen it. I've been walking around with this sense of ignorance hanging over me. And I feel foolish because of that ignorance. It's sort of like that. It's a perfect analogy. Okay, good. I'm not saying that anyone should kill their wives over spinach in their teeth. But what I am saying is, is that this is a play that is obsessed with signs and appearances and how we appear to each other. Othello starts to become fixated on this idea of cuckoldry, and he even starts to try and drop hints to people, well, to Desdemona, to try and get her to confess or to make her feel guilty. He says, I have a pain in my head here. And when he says here, he clearly must be touching his head in some way, as if he's imagining the horns are sprouting through his head. I think it's the same scene where he says, on horror's head, horrors accumulate. And he's imagining himself as this site of horror where another monstrous thing is being created upon his head. As we know, Othello is desperate for what he asks of Iago as ocular proof, actual evidence visually seen of Desdemona's infidelity. What I think is often not noticed in this play, actually, is the man that he charges to provide this ocular proof with, Iago. Iago's role in the army is that of an ensign or an ancient. And the job of an ensign is to carry the colours or the flag that represented the side that you're fighting on in battle. So in terms of this play being all about reading signs, all about trying to see something to give yourself proof of whose side are you on, Iago himself is there pretending to love Othello. He says, I must show out a flag and sign of love, which is indeed but sign. So the idea of having horns on your forehead seen by other people is just something that is intensely painful to Othello. The idea that he would be undermined in such a public way, shamed on such a grand scale, despite everything that he's achieved, everything bringing him down to nothing again, that's the root of his paranoia here. And given that this perceived gesture, this sense that this is going on, attacks his sense of his own masculinity, in some ways feminizes him, do you think that his ultimate actions, the murder of Desdemona, spoiler, and subsequent suicide, align them with a need essentially to reassert his masculine dominance. It's interesting because you're saying that, you know, you think of him as being feminized here. I don't know if I necessarily agree. I think it's less about feminization and more about dehumanization. I think it's less about this idea of you're not man enough. It's you're not human enough. And that's what this Cornutu gesture, the cuckold horns, this is what it all comes back to. It's not just about infidelity and masculine status, it's about dehumanization. It's about taunting a man and telling him he has to wear the horns because they symbolize what he is. 
he's a beast, he's a lesser creature, he's someone who is not human. And while I think that a cuckold gesture could insult a man of any race, I think the allegation of cuckoldry against Othello is ultimately also inseparable from the play's racial politics of dehumanization and delegitimizing his status as a man to be respected at all in this play. So I think there's a kind of a useful distinction between feminization and dehumanization. I do think feminization can also be an act of dehumanization, but I think there's something else going on here. I'm Tristan Hughes, host of The Ancients from History Hit, where twice a week, every week, we delve into our ancient past. I'm joined by leading experts, academics and authors who share incredible stories from our distant history and shine a light on some of antiquity's great questions. Was the Oracle of Delphi really able to see into the future? What can be discovered from lost civilizations? And was King Arthur actually real? You can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. about another gesture, which is spitting. I mentioned this at the top of our conversation. We have it in Richard III. We have it in The Merchant of Venice. Today, we still understand it to be a gesture of violence and humiliation. Is what we read into it the same as the contemporary audience would have understood by it? I think in terms of what spitting symbolises, pretty much yes. I think What I would say is that spitting is probably something that is going to be considered gross then, just in the same way that it is now. I think it might be conceived of as gross for different reasons. Germ theory isn't something that comes into play into the 19th century or so. So we don't yet have this sense that spit can cause diseases, but I think what spitting represents still holds true. I also sometimes think about oral hygiene back in the Renaissance period. I think our mouths would have been a lot less nice back then. So spitting is even worse than in some ways to a degree. I think that if you're spitting at someone, it marks them out as unclean in some way. It's an act that you've been disgusted in some way. You've been revolted. So you're going to spit at someone to indicate that they are the object of your disgust. I think that there are some connotations of spitting that would be more obvious 400 years ago than they would be today. I think that in terms of iconography and the way that we visualize spitting, the most important moment of spitting in visual culture would have been, I think, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We have so many kind of images of him being shamed on the way to his crucifixion and having people spit at him on his way to be crucified. And so I think that's a real association that people have with spitting in this period that we might not think about so readily today. 
That's interesting. So one of the examples is Richard III with Richard of Gloucester spat at by Lady Anne. And here it feels like a gesture of female defiance. She has no real choice but to accept his proposal of marriage, despite knowing that he murdered her husband. How would contemporary understandings of gender politics have influenced how they read her action? Would it have been even more shocking than perhaps it is in our own time? I don't know if it necessarily would have been more or less. What I think is useful, and what you just indicated there is really helpful, is that she's backed into a corner and she doesn't really feel like she has a choice in what's happening here. They have this quite incredible battle of words. It's a great scene to stage. It's a great scene to be a part of, unless you're Richard, of course, or the actor playing Richard, then you get spit in the face. But what I kind of love about this scene is that spit happens when she finally runs out of things to say. The back and forth between them gets shorter and shorter. Her four lines matched by his four lines. She goes down to two lines. He goes down to two lines. By the end, just before she spits at him, I think he just says one word. She says something like, where is he who is better than my husband? And he just says here. And she's like, he's just insulted me with one word and I cannot match him. I cannot do the same. There is not a single word I can think of that can take him down in the way that he's just taken me down. So I have nothing left that I'm going to spit. I kind of love that as a response being backed into a corner. And that's why I love gesture in a way, because it shows the body is doing something that words can't necessarily. I don't know if it would necessarily have been felt as different in some way. I think spitting is pretty much one of the things that has remained something that is an observable instrument of disgust. I think it has different connotations then versus now, but I think the overall effect is pretty much equal. How about then in The Merchant of Venice? Because Sherlock has spat upon many a time and it seems clearly that there's something about racism, there's something about othering this outsider who's Jewish. But do you think that it's fair to say that it also works to garner sympathy for Shylock as a victim of discrimination? Absolutely. And the speech you've just quoted there is such important evidence for that. We get in that speech Shylock telling us that Antonio has spat upon his Jewish gabardine, that he has voided his room upon his beard. Antonio doesn't refute this. He doesn't deny it. That's really important here. He doesn't care that he's done it. But Shylock gives us this scene and he gives us the background of what's gone on between the two of them. And you're right, it elicits a great amount of sympathy for him. And it's interesting because I don't necessarily think that we have sympathy for Richard III when he's spat on. But there's something about what's happening here that is different and that is distinct. And we can talk about the distinctions between, I suppose, Richard and his disability and Shylock and his Jewishness, because what he's clearly experiencing here is anti-Semitism. Shakespeare gives us the opportunity to see things from his perspective. And that's a really crucial difference between the way that Shakespeare depicts Shylock compared with the way, say, Christopher Marlowe depicts Jewish characters in his play, The Jew of Malta. In The Jew of Malta, we never really get this sense of sympathy for Barabbas. He is only shown to us as this pantomime villain character. We get soliloquies from Barabbas talking to the audience. And normally a soliloquy might show us a person's deeper humanity. That is not what Marlowe uses his soliloquy for in Jew of Malta. But when Shylock speaks in Merchant of Venice, he makes a powerful case for his own humanity. And he does this many times during this play. 
And I suppose what those speeches are doing, it's a rebuttal against the way that he's been spat on, the way that he's been spoken about, the way that he's been treated, saying, you can try and dehumanise me, but I can tell you why you're wrong. Let's think about Lady Macbeth next and her very famous scene of hand washing. So again, let's remind the audience exactly what takes place. And then let's have a think about the fact that this is a woman doing it. We've had Lady Anne spitting, but a lot of the things we've talked about so far have involved men or been made by men or aimed at men. So can we talk about Lady Macbeth's gestures as a specifically female experience? I think that's a very useful way to think about this. So what's happening really in this scene is, first of all, Lady Macbeth isn't aware that she's being watched. She's sleepwalking. At this point, she's edged into madness. And when we see her, she's walking in her sleep and she's being observed by a lady-in-waiting and a doctor. And the lady-in-waiting says she's walked like this for several nights before and she's always doing the same thing. She's always rubbing her hands, washing her hands, trying to get something off them. And as Lady Macbeth is talking in her sleep, she tells us that she's trying to get the blood of the murdered King Duncan off her hands and that she's unable to do so. And so that's what's happening in this act of hand washing. I was interested in this as a gesture because I was struck by the phrase, I wash my hands of this. This idea of I'm not involved, I don't have any skin in this game. It's this idea of removing yourself from responsibility. Because if the hand is a symbol of agency, and if we're talking about gesture, we can't really avoid that. Washing your hand is like you're trying to literally get rid of something that you've done. And so that's what's happening here in Macbeth. I think in terms of her guilt as a specifically female experience, it might be useful to think about the distinction between guilt and shame. Do we think that there's actually a difference between the two of those things? Jennifer Jacquet in her book, Is Shame Necessary? She says that shame is what we feel when we fail to live up to society's standards. And guilt is what we feel when we fail to live up to our own standards. So guilt is more internal. Shame is more inherently public facing. And I think that's pretty crucial here because Lady Macbeth has had to keep what's happened a secret. So I think she's feeling guilt rather than shame necessarily. How this links to gendered shame, I'm intrigued by the idea of guilt as a more female experience. And I wonder how linked that is to our sense of internalized misogyny. She's not acting the way she should as a woman and she's blaming herself for that. The more I think about it, actually, the more I think about Lady Macbeth is maybe one of Shakespeare's most isolated characters. Who does she get to speak to? I can't really think of any other character apart from Macbeth who she can actually talk to about this situation. And I think that's what sort of drives her crazy in some ways. I think it's the isolation of her as this kind of lonely, noble woman figure who has so much expected of her to be running this household and to be seen as this noble queen and to stand by her man. I think the pressure of all that falling apart is something that weighs incredibly heavy on her. It's also striking by contrast to how Macbeth's guilt plays out, which is publicly. So you've got the ghost of Banquo appearing before him at dinner, whereas Lady Macbeth is actually seen, but essentially this is a private action that is then watched, so the repeated washing gesture while she's sleepwalking. And I wonder if that sense of her speech being cut off, that 
as a woman, she doesn't have an opportunity to speak about this, is isolated, as you just said, tells us something about a specific gender binary at the time, active versus passive. I would say that maybe there's a binary in terms of expectations, but not necessarily in terms of reality. Oh, yes, of course. Sorry. Yes, I meant in terms of expectations, but very well clarified. I think I would agree with you there. There's really this sense of, well, what Macbeth does, he has traditionally done on the battlefield. In some ways, there's no more sort of public place than that. Lady Macbeth always seems to be inside. She always seems to be in the castle. She doesn't seem to go anywhere. She's just at home. She's just in that private sphere. And I think there's that kind of maddening caged quality about her in some sense, because we always talk about Macbeth's ambition. We need to talk about Lady Macbeth's ambition as well. She has so many ideas that are beyond the world that she's living in, in terms of what she wants to have control over, what she wants to have agency over. And I suppose there's a real sense of she knows she can do more than what she's able to do. But I think her drive to do that is at odds with, once she does do it, how terrible she feels about it. Because she knows she's transgressed this inherent code, not just of being involved in killing the sovereign, but also of being involved in a murder when she's not meant to behave that way. She is crossing several lines here. And that seems to be something that all seems to come together in her mind as she descends into this madness and this repeated washing of hands to try and get rid of any evidence that she's involved in it, to try and prove her innocence because she keeps thinking she's going to be found out. Finally, should we talk about kneeling? Because this occurs in many of Shakespeare's plays. Let's first of all perhaps think about it in The Taming of the Shrew because we have that troubling final submission by Caterina to Petruchio and the line you quote is, I am ashamed that women are so simple to offer war where they should kneel for peace. And this description, which comes at the end of a lengthy battle between the two over the role of power and control between men and women, do you think that kneeling here helps us understand whether this scene upholds or subverts the role of women in this era? I think maybe understand is going a little bit far. Audiences are so frequently more horrified by the play's ending in the scene. Rather than looking at the kneeling and understanding it, they go, oh God, I can't believe this is happening. What I think this scene does give us at the end of Taming of the Shrew is performative potential. And that's what I love about Shakespearean performance these days. We can take a play like Taming of the Shrew and we can, if we want to, find ways to subvert what we might on the face of it see as a really misogynistic, really upsettingly controlling patriarchal narrative. This is not me being a Taming of the Shrew apologist, by the way. <laughs> I don't really think it's really that salvageable. But what I do think is interesting here is what isn't indicated in the speech or in the way that the gestures around this scene are described we don't necessarily get prescribed a sense of tone. So we don't know whether she's necessarily being sincere, whether she's being sarcastic. We also don't necessarily know fully what Petruchio's response to it is. This is a really lengthy speech that Katharina gives us on her knees. And she says, I see our lances are but straws. And then she actually offers to do another gesture. She offers to stroke his foot to do his foot a pleasure. We don't actually know whether she performs that or not, or whether she just offers to. And that's something that, again, modern directors, modern actors can decide in performance how far they want to lean into that. 
But what I think is interesting about that particular gesture with the doing a service to the foot is that is something that we know is an outdated gesture by the 1590s. So even by the 1590s standards, that is appallingly regressive. <laughs> and it might have made the audience pause and go, oh, okay, now this has gone too far. And maybe that's what happens when Petruchio sees it. Maybe he goes, okay, my bluff has been called here. This is all reading between the lines. There isn't a definitive way of interpreting what is happening in this scene. And I think that's what's so maddening about it in some ways. But it also means that we do have this great deal of potential to think about what we might want to do with it. Can we compare it with the gesture of kneeling in Coriolanus? Because this is performed in front of the title character by his mother and family, and it becomes a weapon of persuasion. It's an act of strength by a woman instead of submission. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And that's what I kind of love about it. It's an act of passive aggression. Volumnia, his mother, says, ladies, we will shame him with our knees. And I think that's kind of amazing. Why it works, not all actions of kneeling work in Shakespeare as acts of persuasion. Some of them don't. Tamara kneels before Titus Andronicus to say, please spare my sons. He ignores her. In fairness, maybe he should not have ignored her because we know what happens later on in that play. But in Coriolanus, it works. His mother is kneeling to him. His wife, Virgilia, his son, is kneeling to him as well. And the reason why this is so difficult for him to bear is because Coriolanus hates being the centre of attention. He doesn't want to be part of any spectacle. Coriolanus is a soldier. I'm struck, actually, by how many soldiers we've talked about today and how gestures seem to undermine them. We've talked about Othello, we've talked about Macbeth, now we're talking about Coriolanus. Coriolanus wants to be involved in action, and we've already seen his reluctance to be someone who performs in a non-sincere way earlier on in the play. He hates having to flatter people. He hates the idea of showing off and trying to be a smiling politician, canvassing for votes. So when his family all kneel to him, he's put in the spotlight. And what kneeling really is, it's an act of revealing a power imbalance that puts the person being kneeled to in the spotlight to say, okay, what are you going to do about it? And that is a really tricky position to be in. And what happens is that he basically concedes. He says, okay, I won't come back and attack Rome. And what happens as a consequence is that he's basically torn to pieces by the Volscians, who, by the way, taunt him as being a boy of tears after they've seen this happen. Again, we're talking about masculinity being undermined here. The fact that your mum has come over to you <laughs> and said, what do you think you're doing, young man? Do you see what you're doing to your poor mother? That has a huge impact on his credibility as a soldier. So it's a really powerful scene that has such an interesting power play between masculinity and gender politics, but in a way that ultimately shows how powerful a woman can be in this position. Right. So it does tell us something about what looks like the same gesture can be used by women in different ways and can speak to differing ideas about male and female roles. Yeah. One of the things that I was really surprised by when I started looking for kneeling everywhere in Shakespeare is that characters respond to it differently based on whether it's a man or woman kneeling to them. This is something that happens in, I think it's the final act of 
Richard II, he has three people come and kneeling at him all at once. O'Merle, the Duke of York and the Duchess of York. The Duchess of York is the last one to kneel to him, but she is the first one that he asks to rise. There's something really embarrassing about your aunt kneeling to you. He asks her three times, please rise, good aunt, please get up. And I think it's maybe more shameful when you're a powerful man to have a woman kneel to you than if a man did the same action. It's somehow more embarrassing because it reveals an even greater power imbalance than you would otherwise have there. So to conclude, I've got two questions I want to ask you just to wrap this up. Given that when we see the plays today, we're seeing them 400 years after they were first performed and first written, do you think that the gestures we've been speaking about today still communicate to a contemporary audience in specifically gendered ways? Or have we lost the ability to read that? It's funny because in some ways I want my answer to be, well, everything that we do is gendered inherently. Because I think everything that we do that is seen by others has the ability to have gendered implications projected onto it based on what an observer's own expectations about gender would be. For me, gestures are so rooted specifically in a particular time and place. The only way that gestures make sense in their inaction is in the context that produced them. So for instance, I think I remember years and years ago, there was a bank advert that talked about the power of local knowledge. And they were saying, okay, well, you don't do a thumbs up sign in this place because someone will think of it as rude. Don't do the AOK sign because someone will think you're talking about something much more disgusting. So I think that's the way I tend to view gesture. It's not universal. They are highly specific and that's what's so powerful about them. In terms of the way that they're gendered, I think in some ways they can crystallise in amber these much older ideas about gender politics from 400 years ago, but in a way that we can also still try to change the narrative on now. When I was working on my book and thinking about acts of kneeling as something that was gendered or an act of submission or a kind of reveal of power imbalance, I couldn't help but notice that kneeling was becoming really controversial in the media. The way that people were taking the knee as an act of resilience, an act of defiance, and how angry it made people to be knelt to or to see someone kneeling. And the reason they're angry is because they're seeing the power imbalance of what it is and they don't like being called out on it. So I don't think it's necessarily limited to gender. I think it can be something that's extrapolated out to any kind of inequality within society. I think it's interesting that what we're ultimately talking about here isn't necessarily gender, but about power. That's essentially what Shakespeare's drama seems to come down to time and time again. And I think that's why he uses gestures so thoughtfully and specifically in his work. If a contemporary production converted one of these non-verbal gestures to a modern equivalence, so instead of thumb biting in Romeo and Juliet, they raise a middle finger, given what you've just said about local knowledge, how successful or how useful do you think that is to try and align with a modern audience's understanding of these gestures? It's such a good question because I don't think that we should think about Shakespeare's texts or indeed his gestures as being sacred in some way. You know, I'm happy for us to adapt, I'm happy for us to cut, I'm happy for us to edit, changing things around. I think so long as it still makes sense within the worlds of the performance that you're putting on stage. The example that I came across was, I think it was a performance by a company in Mississippi in 1989, and they changed the thumb bite to extending the middle finger. And that's fine 
I think if you also change the line, but if you're saying, do you bite your thumb at us, sir? And your hand is doing something else. I think in a way that's more confusing because what your eyes are seeing and what your ears are hearing are two different things. So I don't really have any issue with updating it, provided that it makes sense within the scene that's being created. I don't think that's necessarily too much to ask. (laughs) But not easy to do. And that's the problem of intervening is... It's not going to sound as good. No, absolutely. And, you know, there are a lot of gestures. They just don't really do them anymore. One gesture would be the Spanish fig, which is now just something that people say, I don't give a fig for this. And that happens not just in Shakespeare's plays, but in plays by Webster and a whole host of other people. And every time I go and see a play where I know there's a line about a Spanish fig, I think, are they going to do the Spanish fig gesture? And they don't. And for the most part, I'm a little disappointed only because I want to justify my own work. I also get it because at some point that gesture of a fig has just become more redundant and has become linguistic rather than gestural. So the idea that I don't give a fig for something, we would still say that now and we'd get a sense of what that means, even if you don't know what a fig has to do with anything. And I'm not going to tell you now because it's pretty disgusting. But I think it's interesting to see the way these gestures move in and out of usage And when we kind of go back and look at them and try to find them in these historical texts and these historical documents, what we're finding is a way of unlocking cultural codes that we might have forgotten about that are somehow still encapsulated in this gesture. Gestures obviously are very ephemeral. We make them with our hand and then it's gone again. So it's quite a difficult thing to study in lots of ways because it's easier to write down what happens in terms of words, what people say, but in terms of what people are doing with their hands, that's something that is much more fleeting. But if we can grab hold of it, then there's a lot that we can read in there. Cue everyone Googling Spanish fig, or even better, you could pick up a copy of Dr. Thomas's book, Shakespeare's Body Language, Shaming Gestures and Gender Politics on the Renaissance Stage. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for explaining these things. I have learned an awful lot and it makes me think, gosh, I think it's about time to start reading Shakespeare again. Reading, but also watching as well. Always watching. Always watching. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Susanna. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, my researcher, Esther Arnott, and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen including on spotify it really helps more people find not just the tutors history is full of extraordinary people the tutors being just a handful in my latest film on history hit we meet bess of hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the elizabethan age a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.